This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to another episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. During this 12-part podcast series, we'll speak with legendary musicians and celebrated chefs about their hometowns, their first jobs, their big breaks, and the Southern food they love, both at home and on the road. We'll cover everything from being hungry for a career in the spotlight to being just plain hungry. Recorded as we all sheltered at home, you'll also hear honest conversations about what really matters and the hope for a better future. Make sure to subscribe to our program for discussions with Gladys Knight, Willie Nelson, Leanne Womack, Scott Avett from the Avett Brothers, and more later this season. My guest today may have grown up in the meat and potatoes Midwest, but her status in country music also brought her an awakening to Southern food. I've never really fried a chicken. She always said to me, she was like, your kids don't even know what a chicken leg is. They only know, you know, boneless, skinless breasts. And I'm like, you're right, because <laughs> I've never cut up a chicken. Martina McBride grew up on a wheat and dairy farm in Kansas, joining her dad's band at just seven years old. 14 Grammy nominations later, she is one of the most influential voices in the genre. Martina has multiple cookbooks under her belt, her own podcast from Luminary called Vocal Point, and she's being spotlighted this year as part of the Country Music Hall of Fame's annual exhibition, American Currents. On this week's program, hear how Martina's groundbreaking hit, Independence Day, changed the lives of many living with domestic violence. I got letters from people saying it gave them the courage to leave. It's one of those songs that if you write it on paper, it's just poetry. That's the power of a great song, you know, it, it has really stood the test of time. You'll also learn about McBride family recipes, including a dish known as fluff salad. And you mix it all up and it sounds disgusting, but I'm, te I'm telling you it's fabulous. It's like candy. <laughs> so good. Plus the epiphany that first led her to Nashville, which fellow country music superstar taught her how to make true sweet tea, and much more on episode three of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. Well, Martina McBride, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up on a farm in Kansas. Well, uh, my dad was a dairy farmer for a little short while. He um, milked cows, but... For the most part of my childhood, he was a wheat farmer. My sister and I, when he would, was milking cows, we would go down the pasture and round up the cows to take down the lane to the barn. And I bailed some hay. During harvest season, my mom and I would make lunch and take it out to my grandfather and my dad and also hung out in the wheat truck and rode the combine with him. So, Martina, who was the, who was the cook in your family? My grandma always cooked. You know, I spent a lot of time at their house. Uh, they lived about a mile down the road from us, down a dirt road. And um, my mom would cook as well, made pretty much every supper for us. We really weren't a big breakfast family, but we, you know, all sat down to get together for the evening meal. Um, I was sorry to hear about your mom earlier this year. Thank you. You know, it was kind of unexpected. My mom, she was healthy and as far as we knew, but um, thank you. I appreciate that. I heard you say somewhere that she made a great fried chicken. She did. She made the best fried chicken. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, I've I can't fry chicken or I have it 
really fried a lot of chicken. So, But it's interesting, um, when she was in the hospital, my sister and I were talking to her about frying a chicken, and she, she told us how to do it. But it was just one of those things that she did... Uh, on Sundays, but I've never really fried a chicken. She always said to me, she was like, your kids don't even know what, what a chicken leg is. All They only know, you know, boneless, skinless breasts. And I'm like, you're right, because <laughs> I've never cut up a chicken. Well, maybe you've got some time to learn uh, right I do now. now. Yes, I do. <laughs> Definitely. So, Martina, did you grow up in a house with a lot of music? Were you hearing music at an early age? And were there certain things that really caught your attention? <laughs> Yeah, definitely music. Um, my dad was a musician as well as a farmer, and he was a band leader. So he had a band, a country band, that he had since I can remember. And I joined the band when I was about seven years old, singing and playing keyboards, and did that all through high school. So we had a lot of country music, a lot of classic country music, and then like Waylon Jennings, Hank Williams Jr., Loretta Lynn, of course. Then some of the rock, more rock stuff that was more country rock, like ZZ Top, we had those records, and Creedence Clearwater Revival. But as a country cover band, we also covered whatever was a hit on the radio at the time. So, so I grew up listening to country radio and, and covering songs by like Reba and Juice Newton and the classics like Patsy Cline. Juice Newton, I love that. <laughs> yeah, Break It To Me Gently. It was her big hit. I sang that one. And then I got older and really discovered rock music and pop music and then it was pat benatar and heart and journey and linda ronstadt mostly i listened to a lot of rock music i know i was a child of the 80s so i graduated in 1984 so all of the rock bands you know night ranger my first concert was ozzy osbourne um i snuck away to that actually (laughs) my mom would let me go to that one well, my mom thought I was going with my friend and her dad, but it was really just me and my friend. So that was pretty crazy. Joan Jett, I went to see her in concert. Lover Boy. Oh, yeah. I remember all those. So, I mean, when you're you're at seven years old, uh, you know, getting on a stage, did that feel natural to you? I mean, what was, what was that like being a little girl playing with your dad? Yeah, it did. It felt really natural to me. I I started singing at about four years old in church. So getting on stage felt really natural and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do it. Felt like it was what I was meant to do and I loved to sing and it made people happy and probably got me some attention, which I'm sure yeah. as a Leo, which I'm sure as a Leo I loved. What were some of the venues that y'all were playing in? I mean, was this, you know, was this bars or was it dances or, you know, what did that look like? We didn't really ever play bars. We played like VFWs and Elks Clubs and a lot of wedding dances. We were kind of the only local band in the area. And they'd throw these huge Catholic wedding dances and we would be the band that played the music. So we would play four hours in either a church hall or like a rented gymnasium. And then we also did, like there was a school that um, from a little town. The school was no longer, it had closed, but the building was still there and had a big gymnasium. So we would rent that building in Isabel, Kansas, and we would throw a dance. And people would come from all around and bring their coolers. It was definitely bring your own bottle or bottles, (laughs) and there would be all ages there, you know, from from older people to little kids dancing and running around. And 
for me, looking back on it now, it was such a unique experience to be kind of in a local, beloved country band, you know? At the time, it was just what we did. And it didn't, it seemed, I mean, it seemed different because none of my friends did it for sure. And, and it seemed special and, you know, but partly it was just, it was a job. You know, we played every, pretty much every Saturday night all the way through my graduating from high school. Was there a, uh, was there a song or songs that you kind of stepped out on and kind of started to take the center stage? Definitely Crazy by Patsy Cline. I Fall <laughs> to Pieces by Patsy Cline. And then I discovered Linda Ronstadt. And so I would sing like, I think I did Poor Pitiful Me and Silver Threads and Golden Needles, which is an old country song. So yeah, I would I would sing probably probably out of a four hour dance. I would sing maybe twelve songs. But my dad was really the lead singer and the main singer. My brother sang a little bit. He would do Dwight Yoakam and some ZZ Top songs. He played steel guitar and electric guitar in the band. So it was really a family band. My mom ran the soundboard. That's great. It was great. I mean, we played four hour dances. We started out playing, and we play for like. An hour, we'd take a 20-minute break. And then my dad, there were too many fights. <laughs> so my dad was like, we're playing four hours straight. We get a one, one, you know, 15-minute break. Uh, I think he gave us a 15-minute break. We might have just played four hours straight. And we started doing that. And, um, you know, it's a lot of songs. All the fights would break out during the intermission? Yeah. I- I'm so glad that they shared that with us. You know, like, he could have just gone out and played dances and had his own band and but you know to include his children in that was such a such a generous thing to do i mean even though i mean people might think i mean you know as kids we were we did see people having fights and and we were places where people were drinking and you know but but it never felt unsafe it was just so colorful you know it's such a colorful experience looking back of course they were like there were no guns in that area. No, There was nothing like that. It was just, you know, two buddies had a little too much to drink and they'd just, you know, throw a punch. So when did you start to realize that this music thing might really be something and, and uh, maybe, you know, maybe this could even be a career? Well, you know, I always had dreams of being a, you know, a major performer and make records and travel. And I don't know. I just always had that dream. I moved to Nashville. My husband and I got married in, in Wichita. And actually at that time I was singing in clubs. I was singing Whitney Houston and... Pat Benatar and Aretha Franklin and a little bit of Madonna, <laughs> you know. And um, I had to take a little break from singing because I started to develop some nodules on my vocal cords. So the doctor's like, you don't need surgery, but you just need to take a break. So I stepped away from it for a while. And then I went back and started singing a little bit with the country band in Wichita called the Fowler Brothers. And then I started singing with my dad's band occasionally. And just fell back in love with country music. 
you know, I, I went through a phase where I, I didn't really know how I wanted to go after a career, what kind of music I wanted to sing. But I fell in love with country music again and literally was on stage with my dad and had this epiphany. I was like, I want to move to Nashville and I want to be a country singer, which is what I grew up doing. And so I told my husband, I'm like, I want to move to Nashville. And he moved his business here. And, you know, he had a, a sound, concert sound company. He ran sound for local concerts and did a little bit of touring, providing the sound system. And I had no idea how to have a career in music. I mean, there were no examples of that from my hometown or my area. Nobody had ever done it before. But I think, you know, so many artists come from small rural areas. And I just always had that vision for myself. And you started performing with Garth Brooks, right? Well, after I moved to Nashville, I made a demo tape and shopped it around to every record company in town and got turned down by every record company in town. <laughs> then I made another demo tape and finally got signed with RCA Records. And in the meantime, when I was still shopping my demo, I was waiting tables and singing demos for other for songwriters. Where'd you wait tables? This little restaurant in Donaldson, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Nashville, called Darfons. It's a family-owned restaurant. And my husband had done a show with Garth Brooks, Ricky Van Shelton, and Clint Black. And Garth was just starting out. He opened the show. And John came home just raving about Garth and how amazing he was and what a great show he put on. And they struck up a friendship and... John went out as production manager for Garth. And Garth just exploded. Like, I don't know if you remember, but it was like seemingly overnight. He was the hugest star on the face of the earth. And so my husband was traveling a lot and we were newlyweds. We'd only been married about a year and a half. And so I asked John, I was like, do you think I could come out on the road and work? Like, is there a job I can do out there? And so he, he talked to Garth's merch guy and I went out and sold t-shirts for about seven months. And then in the meantime, my record deal with RCA came to fruition and I started making a record. And then Garth asked me to be his opening act in, um, I think it was 1994. And I did 77 shows with him and really just got thrust into performing at arenas, you know, opening for the biggest act in country music. It was pretty, pretty heady stuff. It's cool. So was there a song that changed everything for you? Yeah, I would say that Independence Day was the song that changed everything for me. It was on my second album, and we had three singles off the first album, but none of them really took off. And the first album was very, very traditional country. And with the second album, I just had more confidence in the studio. And I remember being put on the spot, the head of the label at the time said to me, what kind of country artist do you want to be? And I was like, I didn't have an answer for that, really. And it was really kind of an unfair question looking back. But he, he wanted an answer. So I said, I want, to be, I, I want to be like a female Merle Haggard or female Buck Owens. Like, I want to be really traditional country music artist. And so I went into that first record with that very specific kind of song that I was looking for. With the second album, I think I had a wider, I just felt more like me, you know, more like who I really was, which was kind of this country singer who also was influenced by rock singers and pop music. And anyway, I found this song called Independence Day. My producer, Paul Worley, played it for me. He said, I have a song I think you need to hear. And I knew like immediately that I wanted to cut that song. 
I got to sit down at some point and talk to people that were around at that time and get this story really dialed in because, you know, for me, it was just all happening. And But, you know, there were a lot of stations that wouldn't play it. It was very controversial at the time. It's a song about domestic abuse, and it's told through the eyes of a child who's going through it, who's now a grown woman. And it's just a beautifully written song. Like, it's so special. Gretchen Peters wrote that song. And it changed my life. I put it out, and all of a sudden, I was getting all this mail from back in the day when people wrote fan letters from all these women who were like, that's my story. I, I, I finally have a song that talks about what I'm going through or what I went through as a child or... You know, I got letters from people saying it gave them the courage. It was the thing that they heard on the radio and they decided they had to leave their situation. It was the thing that gave them the courage to leave. So it was one of the first times that I was really made aware of the power of music and the power of a song and how it can really change people's lives. And I always felt like I was just the vessel for that song, you know, to be released into the world. It wasn't really anything I did. It was it was, it was was a power of a song and it, it awakened in me this desire to do something to make a difference in about domestic violence. And so, you know, growing up like I did, nobody ever talked about it, about domestic violence. I don't even know that I was that aware of it until I maybe recorded that song. And then I started seeing, you know, just being made aware of the vastness of the issue and had all this compassion and anger for what women and children go through. And so then I got involved in some organizations, the National Network to End Domestic Violence, um, Child Help USA and so that song changed my career it's still I think to this day I would say it's my career song but it also changed me as a person well she lit up the sky that 4th of July by the time that the firemen come they just put out the flames and took down some names Send me to the county home And it's like, you know, it's one of those songs that if you write it on paper, I've written out the lyrics many times for charity auctions and whatnot. And every time I write it out and I read it, it's just poetry. It's like one of those songs that was just so special. Stay tuned for more with Martina McBride after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. 
honey drizzled, and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with Martina McBride, who told me about her awakening to Southern food when she moved to Nashville near the end of the 1980s. When I moved here, I was still cooking very, you know, like chicken fried steak, which sounds like a Southern food. I guess that is a Southern food. But sure, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, you know, I'm trying to think about how I got introduced more and more to Southern food. I mean, one of the people that is such a great Southern cook is Faith Hill. So we became friends, and she would make these big Southern meals, you know, and um she also taught me how to make sweet tea. When I was growing up, we had iced tea with every meal, but it was instant tea. And we just put a couple of tablespoons of sugar in each glass. Right? You know, we just sweetened our own tea. And of course, it would just be at the bottom of the glass. Like, it would not dissolve or anything. It was just... And so I moved here and, and I went over to her house and she made sweet tea. And and I was like, oh my God, this is so delicious. And she she taught me how to make sweet tea for real, like the Southern sweet tea. Now, did you grow up a barbecue fan? I mean, Kansas is known for its barbecue. You know, we really didn't have a lot of barbecue. Another thing that I realized from my childhood is that we never ate out. So it's different from my kids. Like, they, we don't eat out a lot, but they, they have access to restaurants. And we didn't. I mean, eating out was a way special occasion, you know, or we would go to Wichita for like once a month. We would go to the big city for a doctor's appointment or something. So you get to Nashville and you're this, you know, emerging artist and and you're on the road all the time, I'm guessing. I mean, you were touring with Garth. When did you start to develop this interest in food? I mean, was some of that a result of you being on the road and trying lots of different things? I think it was just, you know, always an innate thing with me. I always loved to cook and I loved to have people over and, and make meals. And then... I think after I, you know, had kids, I got married and had kids and and we, I'd cook every, you know, we would eat dinner together as a family like my husband and I grew up doing. And for the first few years, I made sure my tour bus had a little cooktop because sometimes catering can be a crapshoot. <laughs> you don't really ever know what you're going to get, especially when you're an artist that's starting out and can't afford to carry catering. And then a few years ago, the manager I had at the time suggested that I write a cookbook. And I was like, I can do that. You think I, can, <laughs> I mean, I didn't ever. And, and he said, yeah, let's try to get you a book deal. And, and, and so I wrote this book called Around the Table. And, you know, coming up with the recipes and testing all the recipes and really sparked a, uh, even another level of interest in, in cooking and entertaining and learning about it. So back in Kansas, when you're growing up, were holidays a really big thing? Was that, did y'all have big gatherings and, and, you know, kind of big meals or what did that look like for you guys? Yeah, we would always have, um, at my grandma's house, she would make probably, I think she'd make a ham, a big ham and dressing and mashed potatoes and gravy. And, oh, she, she made frozen corn, which was so... I loved that so much. Like the first time I tasted frozen corn instead of canned corn, I was like, what is happening? This is so delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So she made frozen corn and uh, like uh, rolls, you know, rolls and, and cranberry sauce. So, yeah, she'd spend all day cooking for Christmas and Thanksgiving. So you love to entertain. I mean, what does uh, gathering look like at your house? What do the holidays look like at the McBride house? Well, the holidays, like Christmas is just family, but I usually have a big, like an open house, holiday open house party or a cocktail party. And we haven't done it for a couple of years, but we used to have one almost every year and we have like 75, 100 people come and go. I've done it where I've cooked all the food and made all the drinks. And then I've also done it where I've catered it. And I really enjoy the cooking it myself more. <laughs> and I don't know, usually I just have like we have a big Super Bowl party every year at my house. And so we have, you know, your basic Super Bowl food. My husband makes this thing with it's I, um, it's so unhealthy, but it is so delicious. <laughs> In the best way. <laughs> it's like Velveeta cheese and sausage and Rotel. And it's in a, he cooks up in a huge crock pot. And it's like amazing. It sounds like a good Southern living recipe. Yeah, so good. Yeah, so, you know, we probably have, I don't know, 40, 50 people for a Super Bowl. But then I also like just having smaller groups over and, you know, making some kind of simple dinner. I've also learned over the years about entertaining that it doesn't have to be elaborate. Like when I first started entertaining, I would have like three course dinner parties or four course dinner parties with everything plated and I would do it all myself. And I enjoyed that. But then I started thinking, you know, it's okay just to make up a big pot of soup and have a loaf of crusty bread and something good to drink and just doesn't have to be so over the top all the time. And you know that's that's fun too. Do you have some you have some signature dishes that you love to make? Um, I make a gumbo. I make a chicken and sausage gumbo that my family loves, and I kind of keep it for special occasions. I love the fact that there are f memories around food, you know, and so I try to keep a couple of things that I just make for special occasions, so that my family associates you know holidays and birthdays and things with that food. And gumbo is one of those. My mom's pot roast is another one. So that's what we usually have for holidays. I've made a turkey, of course, but my family isn't a big fan of turkey. So I usually make a big pot roast, mashed potatoes and gravy, this thing called a fluff salad, which is which is a family what recipe. What is that? What is a fluff salad? Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> I was making fun of John's dip. This is a, it's a salad. I don't know why it's called a salad because what it is is a jar of Kraft pimento cheese spread and i have never tasted it on its own but it's the basis for this recipe so you take a jar of the pimento cheese spread you take a half a bag of miniature marshmallows a carton of cool whip and and a, some um, pineapple tidbits and you mix it all up and it sounds disgusting but i'm, t I'm telling you it's fabulous it's like candy <laughs> so good the key is to mix it really, really, really well and then let it set up in the refrigerator. So it's best to make it the night before. But anyway, I always make that and rolls and um, usually pumpkin pie. Sounds pretty good. I'll, yeah, the fluff salad, we may have to get that recipe from you. Oh, yeah. I actually ended up putting it in my second book, Martina's Kitchen Mix, because I didn't put it in the first book because I just, you know, it was one of those things that Everybody always says, that sounds terrible, until they try it. But then 
our mutual friend, Catherine Cobb, said you should put a feature in the book called Don't Knock It Till You Try It. And so it's in there. So it's in one of those little <laughs> parts of the book. All right, I'm going to look it up. Um, so what about cooking heroes? I mean, you've done two cookbooks now and I'm wondering if there are people that you really admire or that you, you love their cookbooks that you kind of look to for inspiration. Well, Bobby Flay, you know, everything I make from his cookbook is just delicious and I love watching him cook. Alex Gornichelli. I love seeing her cooking demos and hearing her talk about food. Those are two that come to mind right off the top of my head. Do your kids watch a lot of Food Network? Yeah. My, my oldest daughter actually is a really great cook, and she's getting more and more into it. And she's actually a personal chef here in Nashville. And we watch Chopped. We, we do Chopped marathons, her and I. I love it. And we, we love Beat Bobby Flay, too. Well, that's kind of fun that you've got a, you've got a sous chef there in the house. Oh, yeah. It's great. She, she helped, started out helping me, and then she's just you know, taking it and ran with it. She worked for a company here doing personal chef stuff and then now is doing it on her own. And she has an Instagram account called Hand to Heart Wellness. So she's also a, a yoga instructor and a massage therapist. Wow. So she kind of has the trifecta of <laughs> of skills that that actually work really well for me. <laughs> she can cook for me, she can give me massages and we can do yoga together. It's pretty awesome. So yeah, it's fun being able to share a passion for cooking and food with with one of your children, for sure. Is there a connection between food and music for you? The only thing I can think of, or the first thing that came to mind was sharing. You know, I love to share a great recipe, like I like to share a great song. But I always say, you know, cooking for me is kind of my love language. It's how I care for people. And it's a very nurturing thing in my mind. Like, it's how I nurture and care for my family and my friends. So... At the end of the day, that's probably what it's all about for me. I mean, there's just the joy of cooking, and, and it's therapeutic, and I love it. And I love finding new recipes and and learning, because I'm still learning about cooking. But at the end of the day, it's about giving and making the people that I love something that they'll enjoy and remember and feel loved. So, you know, speaking of taking care of people, we're about a month into this uh, shelter in place thing right now. And we're all dealing with this um, terrible virus and trying to get through this um, together. Uh, tell me what this has been like for you and, and how you guys are spending time. Well, I just did the math the other day and I haven't been out of my house to go anywhere really since like the 23rd of March. And Luckily, you know, we have a 14-year-old daughter who's with us, obviously. She lives at home. And I'm getting to the fact that my oldest daughter doesn't live at home. She's 25. But she lives about a mile away from us. And so she's just been going from her house to our house. And she also is the one that goes to the grocery store for me. So we're all taking it very seriously, you know. My husband's going a little stir-crazy. It's actually not that much different from how I live. I'm kind of a homebody. I don't spend a lot of time going out or I could stay at home for days and days and days. Obviously I have, but 
John, it's harder on him. He's he's very much a people person. So he bought a lawnmower, and that's the only thing keeping him sane <laughs> is mowing the lawn. And we have a really good-looking lawn right now, I must say. <laughs> he spent a lot of time on the lawnmower. But, you know, it's it's interesting how quickly you adapt. Yes, it is. Because I just said to you off the air that my daughter was texting me because she was at the grocery store. And I said to you, you know, she's our designated grocery shopper. And it didn't even feel weird to say that. Whereas like a month ago, I was like, wait a minute, we have to like, only one person from the family should be doing the grocery shopping. And it's like, you just kind of adapt. And I think the hardest thing about this for most people, I think, is not even the fear of getting the virus. It's more the uncertainty of how long is this going to last? What is our life going to look like after? When is after coming? You know, like when when is that going to be? And so it's, you you just have to kind of let that go. I found the healthiest thing is to just not really have expectations and just kind of do your part, stay home, and just kind of wait and see. Yeah, you got to kind of live in the moment and just try to focus on taking care of yourself, staying safe. Yeah, and I think in a way, you know, it's a blessing in a way. I mean, obviously, we are healthy. I mean, if anybody who has the virus or has, I mean, it's devastating, but, but you know, for those people who are staying home and are, are healthy, it's like you get some time, you know, to focus inward a little bit and to do those things that you don't ever think you have time to do and read and pray and meditate. And I'm doing a lot of cooking and I'm also on my third puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> Are you uh, are you writing anything, or are you or are you playing music? Uh, yeah, I mean, we play a lot of music. We have a vinyl record player that we listen to a lot of music on. I'm not writing at the moment, other than journaling. But we own a studio, Blackbird Studio, and it's closed now for the moment. So there's nobody. That's where I am doing this podcast from. There's nobody here. So I I had to do a song. There's a show called Songland on NBC that I was on, you have to choose a song and then you have to record it. And so even during this crazy time, I mean, I've been lucky that I I have a producer who can play all the instruments. So he did the track and then I can come down to the studio, which is just me and my engineer here and we stay six feet apart from each other. And I've been able to do, I've been able to record that song remotely from, you know, I've not been in the same room with my producer. So I think, you know, at first, I was also in this weird headspace and kind of still am where I didn't want to be bothered. I'm kind of like, I was in between wanting to do something and not wanting to do anything. You know what I mean? I just wanted to, it took a lot of energy for me emotionally and mentally to take care of my family, to make sure everybody was safe, to wipe everything down, to figure out a meal plan because we're not eating out, to like really, really focus on all of that stuff. And and I had to do this song and I was like, I'm not in the mood. I'm just not, I don't have the headspace to create. And then I got in here and started singing and I was like, you know, I've, I, I realized how much I need it, a creative outlet, especially during this time. Well, Martina, when we get on the other side of all this, what are you, what are you looking forward to the most? I think touring, you know, our touring has been upended, so We've rescheduled dates for the fall, so that's another wait-and-see situation. But, yeah, I miss being on stage. I miss touring with my road family. 
a lot of my guys, band and crew have been with me some over 20 years. So I miss the camaraderie of that. I miss getting on a tour bus and seeing different parts of the country. I miss engaging with the fans. So I think that's the thing that, it's probably the, the thing that has been the biggest change for me and the thing I look forward to most. Well, we're looking forward to it too. Thank you. So Martina McBride, thanks for being on Biscuits and Jam. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Martina McBride. Her latest single, Girls Like Me, featured on the NBC program Songland, is available wherever you get digital music. And you can visit martinamcbride.com for news, updates, and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Eliza Lambert, and Rachel King at Pod People. I hope you'll tune in next week for more Biscuits and Jam.